The history of this great nation hangs in the balance as to whether God's people will be willing to go down before him in sackcloth and ashes and repent and call for the mercy of God and the power of God to be displayed in the lives of those who are serious about his fellowship. Will you be one of those who are willing to intercede on behalf of this great nation for God's great mercy? It is my hope that you are seriously considering this as an option for your life. In our series, Faith for the Final Surviving the Coming Days, we are challenging men and women to seriously look to God through the power of their own abilities to utilize the gifts that God has given to each of us. Among you out there are those whom God has gifted for faith to walk and to trust him in unique and deep ways. As we continue our series, we are challenging men and women to seriously consider the uniqueness of our great God and his power to work in our lives. We want today to begin a serious look at this whole issue of faith. What is it? Why is it so necessary? And how critical it is to the function of believers in their walk with God. How do you explain the absence of miracles today? There are miracles, certainly. God does do miracles, but it seems that most of them are left to the choice of God as to time and place. Yet in the Bible, there are there are examples where men and women called upon God at unique times and in unique places for God to work on their behalf, and it happened immediately at the request of the man or woman of God. Now, we see limited examples of this today, but nothing on the scale that I believe should be given that millions and millions and millions claim to be Christians and claim to follow Jesus Christ. I believe there's a very simple explanation, and I don't believe it's what most people think it is. Given the fact that we have denominations that are committed to working miracles, I'm surprised that we see so few. For example, there's a word of faith churches. Now, these are churches which have as their singular intent to teach their people how to walk by faith. Uh, these churches, some of them are 25 and 30 years old, begun back in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. These churches focus on the Bible's teachings regarding faith and the manifestation of the great works of God. 
these churches teach that uh, people have the power, they have the ability to speak uh, things into reality, to call things to be that are not. Uh, they focus on seeing the miraculous and the power of God demonstrated in the lives of their people. Of course, all of us are familiar with the great Oral Roberts University. Uh, on that campus, there is a, uh, a city of faith uh, built by Oral Roberts. And uh, as I looked at it, there's a building there, a hospital building, uh, several stories high, built to be a place where men and women could come and receive the miraculous power of God in medicine. And yet, if we look around, we don't see very many miracles coming out of these supposed places where the power of faith is evident. Now, this is not a criticism. This is a, an attempt to examine why it is that even those who claim to be operating in the arena of the divine uh, do not uh, do so. Now, I know most conservatives are Christians who want to honor God's word and they want to honor the Bible and they don't want to say or do anything that is not the will of God. Uh, leave most of these issues in, in the arena of the will of God, that it is God's will to work. And when he does not will it, so it does not happen. Yet I think that there is a different explanation for why we see so few miracles evident in the lives of God's people as a direct result of their request or their belief that such an event should occur. For example, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, we'd, we see Jesus talking to his disciples about mustard seed faith, where he will use this illustration of the mustard seed. In this particular passage, it says, he told them, uh, his disciples, it was because of your little faith. I tell you the truth, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now, on its face, this is a dramatic, powerful promise recorded in God's word. You talk about life verses. If this is not one's life verse, I don't know what other passage would, could be more important and more powerful and more critical to the lives of thousands of people who want to see the exercise of God's great power in their lives. Before we look at this particular verse, we need to make sure that we have an appreciation for the context in which this verse occurs, because there is a very powerful truth that the Lord Jesus sets forth here that most Christians have completely missed and failed to utilize in their lives, including myself. So I want to begin a study to look at this and to discern what exactly it is that God was 
uh, intending by his word. The 17th chapter of Matthew is a unique chapter because of the way it's constructed. In this chapter, we are going to see three primary events in the life of the Lord Jesus. The first will be the great transfiguration. This occurs in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 13. And then in chapter 17, verse 14 to 23, is recorded a miracle of the Lord Jesus. And our passage occurs in this particular section. The final section of this chapter uh, concerns taxes uh, and the paying of taxes by Jesus and Peter in chapter chapter 17, verse 24 through 27. Now, the most critical question uh, at this point is why are these three stories uh, related in the text by Matthew? What is their point and what is the connection between them? The chapter begins, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them privately up a high mountain. He was transfigured uh, or transformed before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now we see where the transformation is occurring. It's occurring in the human or on the human uh, side or aspect of our Lord. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. There certainly seems to be a transformation here, but it is a transformation of the Lord Jesus as reflected outwardly, the outward, external, human, if you will, side of our Lord has uh, transformed or been uh, changed. The text continues, then Moses and Elijah also appeared before them, talking with him, the Lord Jesus. So Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my one dear son, in whom I take great delight. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they were overwhelmed with fear and threw themselves down with their faces to the ground. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. When they looked up, all they saw was Jesus alone. This account, of course, records the Lord's transfiguration or his transformation where the humanity, the human side, was raised or elevated to match the divine side. Uh, the bright shining of his face and the transformation of the clothing, those are all human uh, components. The Lord Jesus is the unique divine Son of God who elevated humanity and gave it power and authority to operate on this earth. 
a transformation is occurring and the kingdom of God is upon men. This is the purpose and point of this text that the Lord Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples that there is a significant radical change occurring in mankind through the Lord Jesus' elevation of mankind uh, to operate in the power and the arena of the Almighty. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage that has been uh, so sorely um, missed or misappreciated in terms of the beauty and its intent. Now, notice the disciples. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, do not tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Uh, in other words, let's not uh, create more problems uh, by telling what you saw and the people misunderstanding it until after the resurrection. The disciples asked him, why then do the experts in the law say that Elijah must come first? Now this question, uh, to a degree, makes sense. The disciples just saw Elijah. Elijah appeared on the earth, and according to the scriptures, the next time Elijah appeared on the earth was to be a time when he would restore Israel and the nation would experience the great promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. And so the disciples are asking, well, uh, according to uh, what the we were told, uh, something dramatic uh, should happen or just happen. The Lord Jesus answered, Elijah does indeed come first and will restore all things. And I tell you that Elijah has already come, yet they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wanted. In the same way, the Son of Man will, will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Now, this is a, a tremendously important text, particularly for the end times. Elijah will come, and the ministry of Elijah will result in the restoration of all things. Uh, this is an important passage that I think has been underappreciated as well. But in this context, notice what the Lord says. The ministry of restoration that was promised or that is promised through Elijah began through the ministry of John the Baptist. The restoration involves God, God's reclaiming or reclamation, if you will, of the earth for his own and for his glory and for his use. The transfiguration of Jesus, elevation, the elevation of mankind to operate in the arena or on the domain of God through his power, evidenced by the restoration that would ultimately result from the ministry of Elijah. 
This is very important because what we see here is that God has begun a great work and that great work is operated or has the potential of operating in the lives of those who are now part of this great kingdom that the Lord Jesus is building. Now, would you please notice at 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly for he often falls into the fire and into the water. Now, Matthew greatly condenses this story from what appears in the Gospel of Mark, and Luke condenses it somewhat as well. The disciples, the nine, left by Jesus when Peter, James, and John and himself went up on a very high mountain, They've been struggling to cast out a demon, which is the source of seizures and terrible, terrible suffering uh, that this child uh, was experiencing. They had failed in their ability to cast out uh, this demon. And as Jesus and his disciples come down the mountain, uh, he, the man comes to Jesus and reports uh, the circumstance and the situation, uh, still seeking to get healing for his son. I brought him to your disciples, but they were not able to heal him. Jesus answered, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him, bring him here to me. This is extremely important. The Lord's response to the inability of his nine and the crowd to heal this child was frustrating to the Lord. The Lord Jesus saw it as unbelieving and perverse. The inability to operate in the power that is now theirs. The Lord Jesus has begun a great work. He has evidenced it, manifested it, and operated in it on the earth. The disciples have totally missed it, and it frustrates the Lord that his people are so unable to operate uh, to accomplish the easiest parts of the kingdom work that he now wants them to be engaged in. How much longer must I endure you? The Lord Jesus asked. I would say that these questions are quite apropos today. Many of Jesus' followers are acting the exact same way. They have no power. They operate in fear and frustration. They have great power available to them, and yet they are defeated on a constant basis. 
the frustration, ladies and gentlemen, that you see in the Lord Jesus here, I believe he continues to experience because so many Christians simply have no clue to what really happened when the Lord Jesus was here on this earth, that he came to say to us, I give you a better way. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and, and it came out of him and the boy was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? Certainly a probative question. It was to that question that the Lord Jesus responds in verse 20. He told them it was because of your little faith. I'll tell you the truth. If you had faith the size of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, that is a powerful verse in direct response to a question by the disciples. Now, the most important question that we need to ask at this point is, what does it mean? The Lord Jesus says, the problem is, you have little faith. That's the problem. He says, the solution or remedy I tell you the truth, if you had faith the size of the mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, the mustard seed is a very small seed. You see it here in comparison to a penny. It is a thousand times the size. The mustard seed of which the Lord Jesus refers was the domesticated version of the mustard seed. It is, in fact, the smallest seed of all seeds of domesticated or seeds that we would plant on purpose. There actually is a smaller seed, but it is not the for cultivation. But the cultivated mustard Seed is, in fact, the smallest seed of the seed family. And the Lord Jesus uses it to make the point. Now, would you please notice the Greek of this verse? It says, but, de, de, uh, it's a contrast. In contrast, or um, in order to advance the story, he says, so, um, he says, that is Jesus, holy guy, and he says to them, the disciples, and it's plural, so he's talking to all nine of them, on account of the little faith, tain oligopistian, on account of your little faith, your, meaning you all, still plural, still talking to all nine. For, now he's going to explain uh, something to them. For, verily, when Jesus uses the word, the term verily, amen, uh, he usually is about to state a fact uh, of truth. He says, for verily I say, I say to you, to you all, if, uh, Eon, 
This is the third class conditional indicator. This is the indication of potential. He says, um, if you have, uh, if you all have, um, the third class condition is the condition of potentiality. It means maybe you will and maybe you want. You, you, maybe you will have it and maybe you will not have it. But the, the issue is that the potential to have it is there. Whether you have utilized or actualized it is the question, not the potentiality. It is a potential reality that a man or a woman can, in fact, have uh, faith, piston. If you should have, maybe you will and maybe you won't, faith as hosts, the little uh, preposition, uh, comparison, as the sea, kukos, of the mustard. He says, you will uh, say, you will say to um, the mountain, this one. You will say to this mountain. Now, he uh, he's probably standing and referring to the very mountain he just descended from, and he's more than likely pointing to it. This uh, he's is the one right here in front of us. You will say to this mountain, Meta Bay, move, um, move from here. Uh, to there, and um, it will move, it shall move, metabasitai, it will move, and he says, nothing, udin, not none, nothing, not anything, nothing shall be possible with the alpha in front of it, the A, meaning not. Uh, nothing will be impossible for you all, speaking to all of them. Now, what you should notice immediately is that in this translation of the Greek that I have said absolutely nothing about the size of. That's because those words simply do not appear in the Greek text. That, in fact, is a contradiction. It would be a contradiction for you to say, for Jesus to say to his disciples, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, having just said to them, you have a little faith, is a tremendous contradiction. Little faith versus faith the size of a mustard seed. Question, what is the difference? What would be the difference if he said to them, 
The reason you couldn't cast out that demon was because of your little faith. The, the Greek word oligopistian means small faith, little faith. Okay? Then he turns around and says, the faith the size of a mustard seed. Well, what's the difference? That translation is very misleading. It is so misleading that most people are simply confused by the verse. I cannot tell you how much confusion the translation of this verse has uh, made for people. And there, I, I guarantee you that there are a lot of people who have read this verse, looked at their own lives, and concluded that they must be ADD or ADHD or just plain stupid. They have no faith. In fact, you, you'd be, you're not going to be surprised, but you will when I show you the different ways this verse has been uh, interpreted because of the way it's translated. And I'm sure that there are a lot of Christians out there who believe that even though they think they have faith and they believe they have it, they don't have enough to move any mountains. And so they conclude that there must be something wrong with their faith or that they simply just don't have it. Because the Bible says it only takes a mustard seed size of faith to move a mountain. And people are wondering, then why can't I move a mountain? I'll tell you next time we get together. God bless.